Bowman Colony. Um, but it was not in Rome. It was in Macedonia, north of Greece. And they were very proud of being a Roman colony. They were the only church that Paul wrote to where he doesn't start out saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He doesn't need to do that with these people because they love him, they believe in him, and they support him. Well, these people are Roman citizens, and they are so proud of being Roman citizens that they wear togas, they speak Latin, uh, most of them are retired Roman military. And so when they get this letter, they get it because they sent gifts to the Apostle Paul. They sent two monetary gifts. One of them was big enough that he could stop tent making part time in Corinth and go to preaching full time for two years. Preaching and teaching. He rented a hall with that money and met with the Gentiles and the Jews in that hall when he was kicked out of the synagogue for preaching Jesus. So he stayed in Corinth two and a half years on the strength of that gift. These people knew Paul and accepted him. And so when Paul writes to them, one of the great things he says about their Roman citizenship He reminds them in chapter 3, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. And we await a Savior from there who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. That's one of the greatest teachings of Scripture. This is the hope of the Christian. The resurrection is the transformation of this dying flesh into something immortal. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the mortal puts on immortality. So that's what we're talking about. We become immortal. There's no teaching in Scripture about immortality of the soul. In fact, uh, Scripture makes it clear that the soul is mortal. Jesus said, don't fear him who can kill the body. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Immortality of the soul is something we all grew up with. We all believed it. But when you look at the Scripture clearly, all the way through, you'll see not the case. Uh, God alone has immortality. First, First Timothy 6, verse 15 and 16. We don't have that. We are not immortal. Um the, the word joy or rejoice is used 16 times in Philippians. Now, this is a letter of joy. The Apostle Paul says rejoice, and again I say rejoice. All the way through the book, 16 times. Can you imagine? And he's writing them a thank you letter for the gifts that they have sent him. And that's another reason for writing Philippians. Colossians, the next book. We're doing a quick overview of the New Testament. Colossae is 
uh, east of Ephesus in what we now call Turkey, uh, about 200 miles east. Colossae is a small city and a small church there. And the people in that church were being taught false doctrine. They were being taught human philosophy. Uh, they were being told uh, that they need to be uh, hermits. They need to go hide in caves so they can live without sin. And others said, no, it's okay. Uh, you can do anything in the flesh you want to do as long as you don't harm your spirit. So you can be immoral and, you know, do all this bad stuff. And the Apostle Paul tells them, you need to stop worshiping angels. You need to stop listening to false teachers. Why should you not worship angels? He tells them, because Christ, if you look at chapter 1, verse 15, he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. He always names four, the universal number. We don't know what these things are. Thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. We just know these are Gigantic, created, spiritual beings that God has made. And he says, all that was made through Christ. And then he says, all the universe came to be through him. And he is the one who sustains the whole universe. He holds it together. His spoken word holds the universe together. I heard recently a physicist, a young guy from MIT who's been studying super strings. Maybe you've been reading some about that. Scientific American had a couple articles about it. They believe now that super strings are what holds the universe together. These are tiny, tiny, tiny within the atom. Nobody's ever even seen an atom. That's how small it is. Electron microscope can show you molecules where several atoms are together and they're all in flux they're always moving they never are still all matter is in flux this table seems solid to us but it isn't if you get down on the molecular level you see everything's moving and you can't predict where any given particle of matter is going to be in the future and in the midst of that are atoms you know, the Greeks were the first that said everything's made of atoms, but they thought the atom was indivisible. They didn't realize that the atom could be broken like we did back in the 40s and produce these tremendous, powerful blasts. And so here in the midst of the atom, they, they have discovered quarks. They've discovered tiny particles within that. They see the results of the particle. That's how they know it exists. And they've discovered these little super strings, they call them. They're tiny, vibrating strings. And he said, we believe that super strings hold the universe together. We've been looking for what they call the God particle. What is it that holds the universe together? And he said, we think the super strings are it. Now, what that means is, he said, 
sound holds the universe together. Hebrews chapter 1 says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So I believe that's, I think they're getting close to finding the God particle. That God's voice, God's word holds the universe together. If he ever recalls it, which he will at one time in the future, Scripture says the the heavens will disappear with a hiss and everything on the earth will burn up, everything will be dissolved, everything will be destroyed. All the stuff we've accumulated will be burned up. And so here, this incredible passage in Colossians says that Jesus is the one not only who brought everything into being, but he's the one who sustains it. He holds it together. This is why you don't worship angels. This is why you don't listen to false teachers. Jesus is all. There's nothing you can add to Jesus. Anybody that says, Jesus plus, and wants to tell you there's something else you need. That's what the Judaizers did. They said, Jesus plus circumcision and obedience to law. And there are people in uh, some of the more fanatical churches say, Jesus plus, you must speak in tongues to be saved. There's no plus. Jesus is enough. There's nothing you can add to the cross. There's nothing you can add to the empty tomb. He's enough. It's not about what we do, it's about what he did. And so Colossians really is all about Jesus being the image of the invisible God. Chapter 2, verse 9 in Colossians says, The fullness of the Godhead, the fullness of deity, dwells in Jesus in bodily form. In other words, as much as you could get into a human being of God, that much was in Jesus. John told us already that Jesus had the Holy Spirit without limit. And so here's Jesus maintaining within himself the fullness of God. So he is the Son of the Father. He is the greatest in the universe. You don't need anything else. The greatest in the universe except for his Father, who is even greater. So that's Colossians. You know, repent, turn away from this false teaching, cling to Jesus. Let that be it. After Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, I'll put these together. There are a couple of teachings that I'll mention out of this. There is a section, actually two sections in Thessalonians that talk about the second coming of Jesus. And he makes it clear that the second coming of Jesus, now some of the people had quit work and gone up into the mountain and waited on Jesus to come back. And when he didn't show up, they came back into town and started getting involved in everybody else's business, became busybodies. 
became gossips, caused trouble in the church. And Paul makes it clear, if they don't work, let them not eat. That's rabbinic teaching that Paul passes on to the church. If they're not going to work, then don't feed them. Don't give them anything to eat. They have to get a job, get busy, and work so they can have something to help people who have needs. And so here, in the Thessalonian letter, he tells that Jesus will return, and when he comes back, we will meet him in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. He makes it clear that the same day of his return, that's the day of judgment, where he takes his people with himself, and the rest, those who left behind, the chances are, this earth will become hell and everything will burn and the people who are left here will pay their bill for their sins. We've had our bill paid because we believe in Jesus. He paid all of it. Our sins are all forgiven. Only God can say all. So our sins are all forgiven, but the world has nothing good to look forward to in the future unless they receive the word from from God and believe that. There's another passage that's a problem passage in Thessalonians, and that and by the way, this is the earliest letter Paul wrote, first Thessalonians. Probably written sometime in the late forties. Um, the other letters came along after this, but First Thessalonians. See, Paul went to Thessalonica, which is also in Macedonia, and preached the gospel and won some people to Christ, but the Judaizers came right behind him and persecuted him and tried to drive him out. And so Paul was there about two weeks and established a church and got out of town because he was being persecuted. And that persecution continued. They kept following him wherever he went. But the church in Thessalonica was strong enough that they were able to make it on their own. But they had gotten the idea from him that the Lord was coming back very quickly, you know, right away. The thing about uh, the Greek word that means quickly, it also means suddenly. So it means it can happen all at once, but it doesn't mean it's happening right now. And so Paul wrote back partially to correct that. But there's a section in Thessalonians that talks about, it's in chapter 2, the man of lawlessness. And I think very few people really understand what he's doing there. It's very common in uh, the Hebrew scriptures that Israel is thought of as a man, he is presented, Israel is presented as a man. For example, Isaiah 53, the one that we know is about Jesus. Uh, Isaiah 53 says uh, uh, he uh, was like a lamb before the shears is silent. He did not open his mouth. Uh, he was, uh, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his life, who knew that he would die? 
that he would be cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and on and on. And the people of Israel say that refers to Israel being taken into captivity, being cut off out of the land of the living. And then one day he will rise again. And that, that's how they interpret Isaiah 53. But recently, Jews who believe in Jesus have written a book, Jews for Jesus. And the book is entitled Isaiah 53, one great chapter. And they take all the teaching of Isaiah 53 and show how Jesus directly fulfills all of it. But the Jewish prophets and the Jewish teachers have several places in the Scripture where it personifies Israel as a person, as a man. In one case, one of the prophets, Ezekiel, sees Israel as a baby kicking about in its own blood. And God came along and found it and raised it and took care of it and fed it and and uh, it matured and grew up and then became a prostitute. That's a picture of Israel being raised by God and rebelling against God. Uh, there are many places in Scripture, okay, where Israel is seen as a person. So what happens, I think, in this passage in Thessalonians? The man of lawlessness sets himself up in the temple. Now, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. Okay, the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem, took all the Jews captive. You should look up the Arch of Titus online. Titus was the guy who was the son of Aspasian, the emperor of Rome. And they built in 70 A.D. a huge arch in Rome in honor of Titus. And on the arch, you know how they build those arches, great big things? There's a big highway going through this. And up here in bas-relief is a picture of Jews going into captivity, carrying the seven-pronged candlestick that Moses made, carrying the Torah, and in the background you can see Roman soldiers standing with whips trailing down at their side. It's in honor of Titus, the emperor of Rome's son, who conquered Jerusalem. And these Jews are being brought captive into Rome. And they were the ones who became the lawyers, the doctors, the teachers, but they were slaves to Rome. Uh, look it up. You'll see what I'm talking about. You can look at the pictures and see uh, these people going into captivity. Well, since the the city of Jerusalem fell in 70 A.D., and this man set himself up in the temple as God, I believe he's personifying Judaism again. I believe he's saying the Jews have established their religion and have set themselves up in the in in the temple as the final authority. That's exactly what they had done. They were trying to kill all the Christians they could kill. 
All the believers they could kill. In fact, they tried to kill Jewish believers, the ones in Jerusalem. They fired them from their jobs. They foreclosed on their houses. And so I believe when Paul writes about this man of lawlessness, he's writing about Judaism. And he's saying Jesus will destroy them with the breath of his nostrils. So the picture of the Roman armies coming and destroying the temple and destroying Judaism forever. I mean, the Jewish state is destroyed. Never again will the Jews be able to carry out the, the law. Today, they go the kosher route. They carry out the, the legal demands of how to eat, what to eat. But they can't offer sacrifice. They don't have a temple. And the mosque of Omar, which is the second most holy Islamic site, blankets the temple mountain. And that mosque has been there for over a thousand years. It's one of the most magnificent buildings in the world. It's probably for me. <clears throat> so, what I think he's talking about when he says a man of lawlessness, I think he's talking about Judaism establishing itself as the final authority. And then in 70 A.D., when the Romans come and destroy it, that is Jesus working out his will against radical Judaism. Let's go on. Timothy. You know, Timothy and Titus and Philemon, there are four letters here in a row that are personal letters, one-on-one, Paul writing to his friends. The first letter, 1 Timothy, is basically written, I need to start at the end of the book of Acts. I think I told you the other day that uh, when uh, Paul got out of jail after appearing before Nero, he went and dropped off Timothy at Ephesus. He dropped off Titus at Crete, and then he went to Spain and preached all the way across the country of Spain. It was called Gaul back there. And all the churches, all the ancient churches in Spain today are the Church of St. Paul. It's kind of like the churches in Greece are all the Church of St. Paul. And so during that missionary journey that Paul made after he dropped Timothy off at Ephesus, he's concerned for Timothy because Timothy is a pretty weak person. He's a good person, but he's uh, he's the kind of person that needs somebody to, to tell him what to do. And so Paul writes back to him the first letter to Timothy. And he tells Timothy basically how to behave in the church in the church of God, how to work with the people of Ephesus. And the Ephesus church, you probably know, is the strongest church in the ancient world. Paul stayed there three years, taught them the whole counsel of God. They knew it all. And the elders of that church loved Paul. In Acts 19, 
the elders and the Apostle Paul met down on the beach at the west edge of Turkey, a mile or two from the city of Ephesus. And they met on the beach and they prayed together and they cried together because Paul said, this is the last time you will see me. And Paul was traveling then on to Rome. And that's when he was put in private house arrest. He appeared before Nero. Then he got out, made his missionary journey, was arrested again. And this time, Christianity was not a legal religion. So he was thrown in the Mamertine dungeon in downtown Rome, a place of filth and rats and uh, cold. He wrote to Timothy the second letter and said, bring my woolen cloak and bring my books and my parchments. He wanted to write more, but there's no evidence that Timothy got there in time. The first Timothy is how to behave in the church of God. And there's a great section in the sixth chapter where he talks about uh, God, the only one who has immortality is God. He is light, dwelling, inapproachable, that no man has seen nor can see. There's a great description of God in that sixth chapter, verse 15 and 16. Second Timothy, I probably should do Titus first because he wrote Titus next after First Timothy. And Titus is another one about how to behave in the church of God, how to treat young women as though they were your sister, treat young men as though they were your brother, treat older men with great respect as your father, and older women as you would your mother. And uh, one of the great passages of, of Titus is 3.5, where he says, God saved us not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. He saved us through baptism. And then <clears throat> Second Timothy, after First Timothy, Titus, now Second Timothy. Second Timothy, I can give you a real quick outline. The preaching of the word, <clears throat> the essence of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day to make us right with God. The essence of the gospel is presented, and Timothy knows this, and so Paul says the preaching, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that takes away our sins and makes us right with God, he says keep it, teach it, Live it and preach it. That's the outline, chapter by chapter. First chapter, keep it. Guard the good deposit. Guard the teaching that you've been given. Second chapter, especially chapter 2, verse 2. 2 Timothy 2.2. Two. He says, teach other men who can teach others also. 
This is the biblical doctrine of ministry. You take what you have, the truth of the gospel, and you teach it to other men who will be able to teach others also. So each generation, Paul's concerned, this is his last letter. Paul's in the Mamertine dungeon at this point, right at the end of his life. He says, I'm about to be poured out as a sacrifice. He knows he's going to die. He's hoping that Timothy can get there before he dies when he writes this letter. Live it, live the word. The word that you have preached, the word you have taught these others to teach, live it. And then preach it in and out of season, no matter when. Whether people are ready to hear it or people are not ready to hear it. Be consistent. You know, we're not called to be successful. We're called to be faithful. Keep doing what you're supposed to do. At the end of the day, Luke 7, at the end of the day, the slave comes in, and the master says, fix me something to eat. The slave's been working out in the field all day long. He comes in and fixes the master something to eat. And the master sits down and eats. At the end of the day, the slave comes up to the master and says, we are only worthless slaves. We've only done our duty. And that's basically how we are. And our master is going to be so good to us. He's going to reward us in amazing ways. The end of Timothy, in the preach it section, Paul says, I'm about to be poured out as a sacrifice. He says, please hurry and come before winter. Bring my woolen cloak. Bring my books and parchments. He knows he's going to die. The book kind of ends with a sob. And Paul is taken out on the Ostian Way east of Rome and forced to his knees and puts his head on the chopping block. And they take the axe and cut his head off. You may not know this, but in the Middle Ages, there was a guy who decided he was going to go to the guillotine he knew he was going to have his head chopped off. He told a friend, stay close and watch when I fall into the basket, when the head falls in the basket. I will blink my eyes as long as I can. You know this? It's an actual story out of the Middle Ages, out of France. He blinked 11 times. You know, there's no pain because your brain is separated from your body. But you're able to, you're still alive a little bit. You can still see, I guess. A little bit. Maybe you can see where you came from. Excuse me? No, don't think so. It's a tail, though. All right. And then Philemon the one that comes after 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, another personal letter. Now, this guy lived in Colossae. So he got the Colossian letter and his letter at the same time. And they were delivered by two men, one of which was Philemon's runaway slave. 
His runaway slave was named Onesimus. A Latin name that means useful. And Paul makes a great pun on that name. When he writes to Philemon, he asks him, please receive him back more than as a slave. Receive him back as a brother. And whatever it was he stole when he left, charge that to me, Paul says. And he basically asks Philemon to receive his former runaway slave, which is the death penalty under Roman law, receive him back as a brother and more than a slave. And Onesimus goes, but Paul sent another guy with him to make sure Onesimus actually got the letter there. And apparently, Philemon received his slave back and accepted him as a brother, forgave him for what he had done. He had stolen and run away, and Paul says, he was useless to you, but now he is useful to you making a play on the word Onesimus. Now, this next book is an absolutely incredible book, the book of Hebrews. Origen, who wrote about 180, about a little over a century after the book of Hebrews was written, says only God knows who wrote Hebrews. Nobody knows who the author is. It almost did not get into the canon of Scripture because nobody knew where it came from. But they finally connected it with the Apostle Paul and said maybe Paul was behind this because it's a lot like his teaching. But the Greek language of this book is far superior to all the other writing of the New Testament except maybe First Peter, which is written by Silas, Silvanus. Uh, Hebrews is a classical style. Now, I have an opinion. I have a, a pretty strong opinion about that. I read a book entitled Priscilla, the Author of Hebrews. And the author had 12 chapters, and each chapter gave a reason for Priscilla being the author of Hebrews. Number one, she's writing to a bunch of Greek-speaking Jews. Whoever's doing this, whoever wrote this book, is writing to a bunch of Greek-speaking Jews. And these Greek Jews are tempted to fall back into Judaism because their families have disowned them. That's what happens in Judaism. It's worse in Islam. Your family beats you to death if you're a believer in Jesus. But these Jews were just disowning. They would have a funeral. Did you know they did that? They do that to this day. If you're an Orthodox Jewish family or a Hasidic Jewish family and one of your children believes in Jesus, they have a funeral for you. And they say, I have no son or I have no daughter. And that's the kind of treatment that they were giving people who came to Jesus. And so some of these Jewish believers were wanting to fall back into their Judaism because it had been easier for them. They wouldn't have to go through persecution. The writer of Hebrews says, you have not yet 
persecuted, you have not yet been persecuted to the shedding of your blood. Your persecution is now only verbal and psychological. It still hurts, but it's not the same as shedding blood. And so the purpose of this letter is to keep people from going back into Judaism and to help them to dig deeper into Jesus. And there's several things that happen in this letter. Number one, there are five warning sections in this letter. I'll just look at the first one with you. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Now, he's already put Jesus above the angels. As the author goes through the book, he puts Jesus above the angels. He puts Jesus above Moses. He puts Jesus above the law. He puts Jesus above the sacrificial system. He puts Jesus as the sacrifice. Jesus as the high priest above all the high priests of Israel. So in other words, he, Jesus, is the fulfillment of everything Israel stood for. Jesus is greater. And the essence of the book of Hebrews is that. Jesus is the greatest. Chapter 2. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, in other words, to the gospel, so that we will not drift away. That's a nautical term. Whoever wrote this knew something about ships and the sea and uses a technical term that means to drift off anchor. You know what happens if a ship drops an anchor and the anchor doesn't hold? The ship ends up crashing into the rocks and being destroyed. And so shipwreck is an image of, a, of the faith being destroyed. The Apostle Paul uses that a couple places. For if the message spoken by angels, the Old Testament, was binding, and every uh, violation and disobedience received a just punishment, how shall we escape? If we neglect such a great salvation, this salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So this person was not an apostle. It was confirmed to us by those who heard the Lord. He's like Luke. You know, he, he studies to find out what the Christians are saying, what those who knew Jesus are saying. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. It appears from this verse that all those miracles have stopped. Because He uses an imperfect verb in the Greek. They used to be proved by all these miracles and signs and gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's how it should be translated. It used to be this way. Uh, if you look at uh, Timothy, Second Timothy, toward the end of Paul's life, he says, I had to leave Trophimus at Miletus sick. Well, why didn't he heal him? Apparently, those gifts were running down. They were given originally to prove that the gospel was true. So toward the end of Paul's life, he was not able to do these miracles that he had done before. Isn't that interesting? 
So there are five warnings like this. Don't drift away. Don't turn back into Judaism. Five warnings. Five is the number of grace. You may remember that. There are five women in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Because women are included in grace just as men are. There's no distinction, Paul says. No such thing as male or female. So this tremendous book presents Jesus as the greatest. And then when you get to the sixth chapter, he is ready to teach them something. Or she is. But the author stops and says, first, I need to tell you about Melchizedek. You have become dull of hearing, but I want you to pay attention. Melchizedek. Now, where, who's Melchizedek? Where is he mentioned in the Bible? Two places. Genesis chapter 14 and Psalm 110. David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. And then verse 4 says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, who's Melchizedek? Well, he is the priest of El Elyon. He is the priest of God Most High. He is the priest of Salem, the city of Salem, later called Jerusalem. He comes out to meet Abraham. You remember the story in the 14th chapter of Genesis? Abraham has gone out and conquered five kings. Uh, I should say four kings, because four kings conquered five, took them away captive, and Lot was among them. Lot, Abraham's nephew. So Lot went after, uh, Abraham went after him. And God told him how to do it. And he came upon them at night when they were drunk in their tents, and he routed them and destroyed them and took all the loot all the, the stuff that they had stolen and brought it back to Jerusalem and came back down through the Holy Land and ended up outside of Jerusalem. And when he came to Jerusalem, out came Melchizedek, the high priest of El Elyon. And he met Melchizedek. And Abraham fell on his face in front of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham. This means Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Melchizedek, we don't have any genealogy about him. We don't have any history of him. We don't know his beginning. We don't know his ending. He's just there. And Abraham recognizes that Melchizedek is superior to him. Now, Abraham had not had any children yet. He doesn't have children until the 18th chapter of Genesis. This is back in the 14th. So all the children Abraham were to have were inside Abraham, including the priests, the Levites. They paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham. So Melchizedek's greater than all the priests of Israel. And so the writer of Hebrews is the only person who talks about Jesus' high priesthood. And this writer says, 
that Jesus is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. These, the, the name, two words in Hebrew. King of righteousness. And he's also king of Salem, which means peace. So he's the king of peace and the king of righteousness, and Jesus is like him. And the rest of the, the letter speaks of how incredibly powerful Jesus is to be like Melchizedek. And the last part of the book, Chapter 10 is a powerful warning to these Jewish believers. Do not fall away. If you stop going to church, he says, you are in grave danger of judgment in chapter 10. The only thing you have to look forward to is judgment. If you stop going to church, got to stick with it, folks. These people had to stick with it. You get to the 11th chapter, it's the greatest chapter in the book of Hebrews. 11th chapter, all the roll call of the faithful of the Old Testament. All the great people of the Old Testament, starting with Abel, who offered a sacrifice in faith. And ending up all the way down through Noah and Abraham, Moses, and just on and on. All these people by faith inherited the promises. Now, if they got it back in the Old Testament by faith, how important do you think it is for us to hold to our faith? Their faith was based on a relationship with God through the law. Our faith is based on a relationship with God through His Son. And so chapter 12, he says, keep your eyes on Jesus. Run the race. Follow him. And realize that you are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. All these people who've gone before. I've always wondered if they can see us as we try to do what's right. As we try to serve God. He says, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Wonderful image. Probably the greatest verse in the book of Hebrews is chapter 4, verse 12. Where he says, the word of God is living and active. And sharper than any two-edged sword. You know, this is the sword that was used to cut up the sacrifices, to slice them open. The Word of God is sharper than that. Able to cut down through joints and marrow, even through the separation of soul and spirit, whatever that means. And to split us open. And to strip us naked before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. In other words, the word of God pierces, cuts through, opens us up, and God looks inside and sees every single... I first studied this 
It scared the heck out of me. I thought, he knows me that well. He knows all my sins. He knows everything about me. And I studied the rest of the book and found out it's because he's our high priest. He has to know me fully so he can forgive me fully. That's the reason for that great knowledge. Don't you love it? James. James is Jesus' half-brother. In Scripture, he's called the brother of the Lord. James was an unbeliever. In fact, James is the only unbeliever Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 lists James as one of the people to whom Jesus appeared in the 40 days after his resurrection when he was showing himself to be alive. He's the only unbeliever. You, you read John and you'll discover these brothers of Jesus, brothers and sisters, and they didn't believe in Jesus. They weren't listening to their mom and they weren't listening to Jesus until Jesus showed up after his death went and talked to John to James and all of a sudden James realized he was wrong and he told his other brothers and so now in the Bible we have two books written by Jesus half brothers James and Jude James writes his book based on the sermon on the mount in Matthew 5 through 7 he takes Jesus' teaching and applies it practically for everyone. I have never preached through a series. I've taught James, but I've never preached through a series for a church on James because it's such a painful book. It's so much about obedience. It's so much about doing what God wants you to do. It's so much about overcoming temptation. You know, I want to do it. I want to preach through it. I probably will in the future, but I'm not ready yet. It's tough. James is tough. The early church fathers say that James was called old camel knees because he was on his knees so much praying that he had bruises on his knees. He was an amazing person. He became a, according to the Apostle Paul, he became a pillar in the church in Jerusalem. One of the strongest leaders in the church in Jerusalem. Jesus' half-brother. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus as an older brother? And he's trying to tell you, trying to show you who he is. And he just, come on, man. I mean, it would be a tough thing. But when he's dead, and all of a sudden he's in your room talking to you, you better change your views. It's amazing. That's James. Read James. It's about action. It's about your obedience and your words have to be good. First Peter's next. First Peter, I think, is a series of homilies, a series of sermons on baptism. 
and I believe Peter is the essential author of this, but he didn't write it. The Greek is way too good for Peter. 1 Peter 5.12 says, I have written to you through Silas to remind you of these things. I love 1 Peter. 1 Peter basically deals with everything in the Christian life. It uses the word Christian, and it says if you're going to suffer, you should suffer as a Christian. The first use of the word Christian, anybody know where it is? Acts eleven twenty six. The believers at Antioch were first called Christians. Christian means one belonging to Christ. The Jews were never called Christians because their word for Christ is Messiah, Mashiach. So they are Messianic Jews. But Gentiles can be Christians. And so from that point on, People are known as Christians. The word Christian appears only three times in the New Testament. Peter uses it twice. And one of those is about suffering as a Christian. If you suffer, suffer for doing good, not for doing evil. And one of my favorite places in the Scripture, one of the hardest passages in the Scripture, is 1 Peter chapter 3. You know, I love chapter 1 at the end where he talks about we have been born again. The Greek word, palingenesis. We have been born again, not by perishable seed, but by imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God. And that is the gospel that was preached to you. All flesh is grass, and all its glory is the beauty of the, of the grass of the field. The flower fades, and the grass withers, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And that's the gospel that was preached to you. We're born again by that. And then you go over to chapter 3. you got this really tough passage where it talks about Jesus in the Spirit preaching to the spirits now in prison. In the time of Noah, I think what he's saying there is that the Spirit of Jesus was in Noah, and Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And in his day, he preached God's Word and warned the people about the coming flood, and nobody believed except his family. And then, using the ark as an image... He says, eight people, you know, the number eight is the number of new beginning. Eight people were inside the ark and passed through the flood. And then he says, they were saved through, through water. And then he says, the same figure is baptism. Through water we are saved. And so he says, baptism, literally, this is what the Greek text says, baptism now is saving you. Not by a washing of the dirt of the body. In other words, it's not the physical act of baptism that saves you. But by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit on the inside, where your heart is sprinkled from an evil conscience. And your body is washed with pure water. 
But the washing doesn't say. We are, we are all in this room probably baptized believers. If you're baptized, you have a promise. And the promise is that you were buried with Christ by baptism into death. And that you arose to walk in newness of life. And the book of Revelation says if you've gone through that first baptism, you have nothing to fear from the second death. That's a promise that goes along with baptism. You're safe because of your faith and because of your baptism. Two makes it a matter of a fact. Inward, your belief. Outward, your baptism. And your baptism, the real reality of baptism is not the water, but the sprinkling of the conscience. The changing, the, the circumcision of the heart, the Apostle Paul calls it. Our hearts are circumcised by baptism. So, like the flood saved Noah's eight people and his family, so baptism saves us through the water. But not without faith. I love Peter because right at the end of the book in chapter 5, he says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. Now here is the head apostle. Just referring to himself here as another elder of the church. And he asks them to be good leaders, good shepherds of the flock, because they have a shepherd who is over them. The good shepherd. Second Peter. Probably one of the most powerful books in the New Testament is Second Peter. Peter actually wrote Second Peter. The Greek is not as good as First Peter by any means. And First Peter is Silas, as I said, but Second Peter is actually written by Peter. The first chapter, Peter remembers his experience on the mountain of transfiguration. At the end of the, of the first chapter, he says, We heard the voice on the holy mountain, and we are eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty. We didn't make up cleverly devised stories when we told you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we saw Him. We saw Him radiate that brilliant light on the mountain with... Moses and Elijah. And we heard God speak out of the cloud. And Peter never forgot that. The first chapter is about Christian growth. If you look at the beginning of First Peter, or Second Peter chapter 1, he's talking about growth and he talks about adding one thing to another, to another, to another as we, as we grow in Christ. Then chapter 2 is a terrifying chapter. A chapter about Jim Jones. A chapter about false teachers. A chapter about cult leaders who will destroy people. You remember Jim Jones? Remember what he did? I read a book called Hold Hands and Die. And on the front page, a helicopter was flying over the camp after this mass suicide. 
And he took a picture, and you could see people down there, their bodies bloated, holding hands, dead. Second chapter of Second Peter tells about people like that. That they are mists driven before the storm. That their lusts are out of control. And they, they're destructive. They are false teachers. They're the ones that Jesus warns us about in the Sermon on the Mount when He says, come in through the narrow gate and stay on the narrow way, but watch out for the wolves. Because there are wolves in there dressed in sheep's clothing. And they want to destroy you. Chapter 3, one of the most powerful statements of the end of the world. Amazing. He talks about people thinking that that everything will continue on as it always has been. It's called uniformitarianism, the teaching of evolution, that it just continues and continues forever and ever, millions and millions of years. Peter said, don't forget, God brought the universe into being by His Word. God destroyed the universe that then was by a massive flood. And only eight people were saved. And then he says, and don't think that this world will not end. And he goes on and describes it. Listen. Look down in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be burned with fire, destroyed with fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people should we be? It's so practical. What are we supposed to, you know, are we supposed to mass up treasure for ourselves here? Are we supposed to keep our wealth and use it for ourselves? Now, this is one of the problems of the church. The church in America is not giving the way it should. And there are people around the world who are starving, who need food and the gospel. And if we would send it to them, if we would provide money for these missions, uh, they can do amazing works. I was talking to somebody about, I think it was Vanessa, about the, uh, Paul and I were talking about the uh, great work that's going on with the, in the Jesus Film Project. Many churches don't even know about this. You can look up the Jesus Film Project. You can download it to your phone. You can show it on a television. It's simply the Jesus Film. It's His life. It's been shown to millions of Muslims. If you've ever tried to talk to a Muslim, you know they have an answer for every argument. But when you show them the life of Jesus... And they see it by the millions they are accepting Christ as the Savior, turning away from Islam. Uh, Miracles have been connected with this, showing this movie in different parts of the world. 
uh, there, there's been a whole list of miracles come out in their magazines to explain how they were able to show this in places where the, they were going to be bombed, they were going to be killed. But they went ahead and showed it because God had warned these people in visions and in different ways. You need to see this film. And they went and became believers and were transformed. And there have been many Saul of Tarsuses, you know, many Sauls becoming Pauls. These terrorists, you know who Boko Haram is, don't you? The guy that, the, the guys that stole all those young girls and forced them to marry Muslims. I've been praying, my wife and I have been praying for over 30 years that God will send dreams and visions to the terrorists, to the world leaders, to Kim Jong-un. Been praying for years and years. And people, folks, the Muslims are seeing dreams and visions. We have three videos that are 20 minutes each. The first one is about a guy in Turkey, lived in the middle of Turkey, Never heard of Jesus. Was a nominal Muslim. One night he had a dream of a man in white saying, follow me. And he awoke and knew it was Jesus. And committed his life to Jesus. And followed Jesus for two years without ever meeting a Christian or seeing a Bible. And one day he heard on the radio he could order a free Bible. And he ordered it. And when it came, he read it through from Genesis through Revelation without sleep. And believed and fell on his knees before God. And he had been a drunk, had been beating his wife. He had stopped that the last two years. He told her what he had read in the Bible. She believed. He began spreading it in the area where he was. Many people believe because of this one guy having a dream. It's happening all the time, all over the world. You know, where we can't go, God goes. The Scripture says God is not without a witness. And God spread the Word, His own Word, by dreams and visions. And I really want that to continue for us. We have got to get the word out. The epistles of John, there are three of them. First John is a PS on the gospel. The reason John wrote the gospel, you remember what it is? I write these things that you may believe and believing have life in his name. And then First John, he says, I write these things to you who believe that you may know for a fact that you have eternal life. So if you want to know for a fact you have eternal life, read First John, by all means. Because he reveals to you that you do have eternal life. And he gives you six or seven signposts of sonship. What does it mean to be a son of God? You do what's right. You practice righteousness. When you fail, you feel bad about it. When you sin, you feel terrible. 
You keep doing what's right. There are two kinds of people, those who are sons of Satan and those who are sons of God. There's nothing in between. Nothing between heaven or hell either. So read First John if you're worried about your salvation. I was told to read chapter 2, and there's a section in there that says, By this we know love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave himself for us. And he told me to read it again now out loud and put your name in there. And I read, By this Mark Barrier knows love. Not that Mark Barrier loved him, but that he loved Mark Barrier and gave himself for Mark Barrier. When I read that, the whole universe shifted. It was a quantum leap for me. All my Christian life, almost 18 years, I had thought I was lost because I wasn't good enough. And when I finally realized that he had forgiven me, he had accepted me, I was able to forgive myself. I stopped judging everybody else around me. I was set free for the first time in my life. First John did that for me. I know I have salvation. Not because of me. I'm not any good. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. He's the reason I have salvation. Second John is very similar. Incidentally, if you've ever heard of Antichrist, the Antichrist is mentioned only in First and Second John, never in the book of Revelation. And John defines who the Antichrist is. Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ. And in the first century, he's talking about Jews. The Jews who are persecuting Christians, who refuse to accept Jesus as the Messiah. For them, it would be Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus the Messiah. But they, the Jews refuse to accept him. And so they persecute Christians. And they are the Antichrists. So there's not one Antichrist at the end of the world. There's none of that teaching in the book of Revelation. I've taught Revelation for many years. And Antichrist is never mentioned there. Only in First and Second John. Two places in First John... Chapter 2, 15 and following. Chapter 4. And then 2 John, verse 7. And then 3 John is a warning about a man who's an evil man and a, a good word about a good man. And then Jude, the other half-brother, the younger half-brother of Jesus, younger than James. Jude is very much like Second Peter, chapter 2. He warns against false teachers. And he says to keep the faith. Be careful to keep the faith pure. And then Revelation. I'm going to give you, we're out of time, but I, I decided tonight I'm just going to finish. You may hate me for it, but only 15 minutes, maybe 20 Revelation 1 through 3, 4 through 7, 8 through 11. That's the first three visions. Those are the chapters. And then 12 through 14, 15 through 16, 
17 through 19, and 20 through 22. And those are the seven visions. Seven churches, seven trumpets, seven seals. Seven is used 56 times in the book, which is eight times seven. And then down here, this is basically what's going on in the physical world. This is basically what's going on in the spiritual world. Metaphysical means what's behind the physical. In the physical world, Satan is a, you know, Rome is killing Christians. In the spiritual world, Satan is attacking Christ. And that's what happens here in chapter 12. Satan attacks Christ, and Christ is taken up to heaven, and Satan can't get to him. So Satan takes off after the church. <coughs> the church is the woman who is given wings, who flies away to a desert where she can be taken care of for time and times and half a time. Three and a half is a symbol for persecution. And since he can't get the church, he can't kill the church, Jesus said the gates of hell cannot overcome the church. And since he can't kill Jesus, Satan takes off after Christians. And he uses the Roman Empire in the first century to attack and kill Christians. The Christians are dying by the thousands in the first century. And this book is written, the book of Revelation is written to encourage people to be able to stand up against persecution. It's not written to scare people. You know, take my study on the numbers and use it to interpret the book of Revelation. Chapter 4, holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. Three sets of three. Three is God's signature. So just check out the numbers. Uh, I will send an email to, uh, well, any of you, but uh, I'll send one to Harold and he'll run copies of the numbers. I'll send one on the... Uh, basic structure of the book of Revelation, what to look for, strange animals, things like that. I think we're going too long. Not a problem. Glad she was able to make it. Let's pray together. Lord, you blessed us.